Welcome to the New Books Network and this podcast in African Studies. I'm your host, Jim Lance, and today I'm very pleased to have as my guest Professor Mariana Candido, a professor of history at the University of Kansas, and we will be talking about her book published by Cambridge University Press entitled An African Slaving Port and the Atlantic World, Benguela and Its Hinterland. Mariana, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate your taking the time to be a guest. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I always like to start out asking my guests uh, how they became interested in African studies and what led them uh, to write uh, and research the book that they've written here. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to uh, write this book? Okay. Um, well, I, uh, I was born um, in Brazil, in Rio, in Brazil. I, I grew up in Brazil, and I did my, my undergraduate studies also in Rio. Um, and I think it's the regular story. of I had a great professor who taught an amazing course on African history and made me realize things that I have never thought about before. At uh, the same time, um, this was in, during the 1990s. Yeah, it was the 1990s. So it was at the height of the civil war in Angola, and many Angolan refugees arrived in Brazil. So I was also teaching Portuguese to Angolan children who who needed to attend schools in Brazil. And I, I had a hard time understanding why these people were coming to Brazil without knowing how to to read and write Portuguese. So because of that, I started reading more about Angola, and I took more classes in the university. And when I finished my BA, I really wanted to to do a, a master's in African history. But at that moment, there was none in Brazil. Now, before 2003, there was no graduate program in Brazil on African history. Um, so I went to Mexico to do my master's, and I spent three years at El Colegio de Mexico in, in Mexico studying African studies, which was a great opportunity. It forced me to go beyond my little interest in Angolan history and to read more about other parts of the continent. And from, from Mexico, then I, I, I applied, and I, and, I, and I went to do my PhD in Canada. So in many ways, this is a very long history of how I become interested in, in African studies. Um, and in many ways, um, Angola is the closest to, to Africa in, in Brazil and certainly in Rio. Um, so in, I don't think it's, it's a surprise that I become interested in Angolan history, uh, especially knowing of so many topics that bring us together um, across history. Hmm. And um, what led you to write this particular book then? What, what, uh, what led you, what was your path to getting interested in slave, African slavery and the Atlantic world? Well, um, during my PhD program, I started, um, my, my, my PhD thesis was about Benguela. I worked in a different time period. It was the late 18th century in the 19th century, more than anything, um, and then I realized after the PhD that there wasn't much, or during the PhD, I realized, I realized there wasn't much written about Benguela. There were people who had uh, studied Benguela, but always in comparison with other places. So I'm thinking here in scholars such as Joseph Miller or José Curto, who have published things about Benguela, 
But always thinking about Benguela in comparison to Luanda. And I realized that there was no book in English about the port of Benguela, the history of Benguela. Uh, and the latest book written about the port was published in 1945. Uh, so I said, no, this is a great topic. And at, at first, uh, people told me, no, there is a reason why people don't work on Benguela. There are no documents about this place. There are no documents before the end of the 18th century. And for my surprise, when I went to the archives, I you know I started finding documents as soon as I started opening boxes um, of documents. And, and I realized that I could write a history of, of this port since its foundation by the Portuguese, although not, not much is known before the period um, of when the Portuguese arrived in the beginning of the 17th century. We know that people lived there, but we need more, uh, more research on that. So this was my motivation to write this book in many ways to answer many of the questions that I that I had about this place. You know, there was no um, no general political history of of this region, of the states that existed, the the communities that existed, the languages that people spoke. So I said that this is a nice challenge, and I I decided to do it. Hmm. Um. Let's pretend we're on an elevator and, and a person notices your book and asks you during the ride from the first to the, say, the 10th floor, hey, what's your book about? Can you tell me briefly? Oh, I, I will do an ever. I'll, I'll try. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, it's a history of a port, a slaving port um, in the African coast. Um, Benguela is the third largest slave port in the coast of Africa. So it is an effort to understand how this place becomes important in the Atlantic world, but also on the consequences of the transatlantic slave trade on the people who stayed in this region. Not necessarily the people who left, but the people who stayed there. How did they cope with losing so many people in a relatively short period of time? Hmm. That's well. Let's, now let's kind of dig a little deeper. Um, I'd like to talk a bit, have you explain a bit, your concepts before we get more into the the meat of the book. Um, the Atlantic world, um, the South Atlantic world. I guess I have two questions. What do you mean by the Atlantic world? What do you mean by the South Atlantic world? And related to that is a third question. Why has Benguela been so neglected? Because in your book, you really show that it was an important part of not only the Atlantic world, but uh, the African uh, the history of slavery in and the Africa and the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, so the Atlantic world. Well, the Atlantic world is is this the concept that historians um, have been uh, using for now several decades to to explain this moment when different cultures, different people got together, and the emphasis has always been on Europeans and the Native American uh, population. So the arrival of Europeans. In, in the Americas and what happened um, from the, the efforts to conquest and, and colonize uh, the, the, the Americas. Africans play a role in most of the, the accounts, most of the efforts to talk about the Atlantic world, but it's always as um, enslaved people. And very little, so very few studies focus on, on Africa when talking about the Atlantic world. The emphasis has always been on, on Europe and the Americas. So it's very recent that uh, historians are including Africa in, in the Atlantic world, which I think not only is, 
is important because of the the role that African societies played in shaping the Atlantic world, but also because there are lots of exchange going on between uh, the Americas and Africa, uh, in Africa, um, not only of people moving, but also ideas and, and exchange of crops. Uh, we tend to think all of, you know, of, the, of the Columbus exchange as if something that happened only between Europe and, and the Americas, and we forgot there was also an exchange between uh, the African continent um, and, and, and the whole Atlantic world. And if Africa is neglected in most of the, the scholarship about the Atlantic world, there is no doubt that the South Atlantic is, is forgotten, and the notion of a triangular trade as shaping the Atlantic world needs to be revisited. The, the triangular trade might be a valid concept for the North Atlantic, but it's not valid for the South Atlantic. The South Atlantic uh, was dominated by bilateral exchanges rather than triangular ones. No, Europe is a periphery in, in the South Atlantic. Portugal was um, not as important as the exchange of people, of goods, of crops, and of ideas between uh, uh, Brazil and, and the African continent. So I think this is what makes the South Atlantic different than, than the North Atlantic. And understanding this is important to have a better understanding of, of the Atlantic world. Now, why did people neglect Benguela? I, I, I don't think that people neglect. I think that people were not paying attention to it necessarily because they were studying West Central Africa as as a unity. Um so again, there were there were people who who did work about Benguela, but it was always Benguela in comparison with other ports in West Central Africa. And uh, in many ways, when the transatlantic slave trade database became available, um, especially the online version with the the revised numbers, it became clear that Benguela was not a marginal place in the Atlantic world. It is um, now known that at least 760,000 people were forcibly um, transported from the port of Benguela. Uh, This makes Benguela the third largest slaving uh, port in the African coast, only Luanda, also in West Central Africa, and the port of Elmina, or, or the port of Wida, excuse me, in, in West Africa, had seen more people deported than, um, than Benguela. So hopefully more people will study, focus on the port, uh, because we do need more people working on Benguela. There are too many documents to be uh, to be considered, and hopefully more people will feel motivated to to work in these archives and and provide more details about this history. I certainly hope so, because your book makes a compelling case. Uh, I guess I think yeah, neglect may be too strong a term, but uh, as I read your book, I was struck by how many scholars just kind of uh, said, "Well, yes, it was important, but the effects of the slave trade were not nearly as." as dire or drastic as in other parts of Africa. And I think you counter that. Why, why do you think there's this perception of Benguela and the, the slave trade there is somehow less benign than elsewhere in the continent? If that's a correct, if I'm reading you correctly. Well, I, I think the, 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 there is one, one thing about the historiography on, on the slave trade and on slavery studies. They tend to be based on, on, limited by language. Now, most scholars who work in North America, who are based in North America, tend to work 
on places that were um, colonized by, by the British, no, because of a series of, of reasons, no language affinity, easier access to the archives, and also closer connection. Um, very few people from the Port of Benguela ever made it to North American locations, very few people. So Benguela is also a, a distant place for people basing in North America. So I do understand that I don't blame people from, from not paying attention to, to this place, but Benguela does have a very strong historical connection to, to the place where I come from, with, with Rio in Brazil. Um, so this might explain why I became interested in, in this place um, as well. But also because people who are who studying in West Central Africa um, get overwhelmed by the number of documents, but also the importance of Luanda as a slave port. There is no doubt that Luanda is, is the most important place, uh, the, the largest slaving port in the coast of Africa. So I think that distracts people from other ports that are seen as smaller than Luanda, but they are certainly bigger than other ones that have received more, more attention by, by scholars. Now, more people left from Benguela than from Gore, for example, or Elmina, or Calabar, uh, yet uh, very few people um, have looked at documents focusing on Benguela. But hopefully, um, people will see that it's possible. I think it also has to do with... Um, the difficulties of having access to archives in Angola, you know, the the long civil war that affected Angola and finally came to, to an end in the beginning of, uh, of this century, also make it easier now to people to go to Angola and do research. So hopefully more people will will feel motivated and see that they are important documents that need to be uh, to be used if we really want to talk about the impact of the transatlantic slave trade on, on African societies. Hmm. Um, well, let's let's move on a bit to talking about what what would you like readers to glean in, from your book in terms of its major themes and concepts. What what are the what are some of the ideas that you really wanted to stress in addition to kind of bringing Benguela to people's attention? Uh, and I think the reasons why. It, it hasn't been on people's radars. You've just really explained really well, and I'm sure with your book, it, it will become more of uh, more interest to scholars who might have been, you know, sort of afraid of studying it because of the, the linguistic and other barriers you identified. So, but what what are the major themes and arguments that you you posit in your book? Mm, well, I, I hope people will. Um, I, I think it's an effort to to go beyond just this. Uh, the division that exists in African history of pre-colonial and colonial African history, this notion that colonial African history is only the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, except when we talk about South Africa. Now, South Africa is a different case. And I, I think this is an effort to show that, yes, South Africa might be a different case, but there are other places in the continent that have always, uh, that have also had a long history of colonialism. So in many ways, Cape Colony is similar to what happened in certain places in West Central Africa. And Angola is one place, Benguela, no, Luanda is one place, Benguela as, as another place. Um, so hopefully it's an intervention on this dichotomy on pre-colonial and colonial Africa, because in many ways the two things are, are together there. But also one of the things that I, that I wanted to emphasize in this book 
and I hope people will will get this when when reading the book, is that for a long time, Africanists have uh, emphasized the agency of Africans in the transatlantic slave trade or the agency of African rulers in in selling people to European merchants. And when I, what I realized doing research is that the Portuguese, Portuguese merchants and Portuguese colonial officers, as well as people born in the colony of Brazil, and then when Brazil became independent, uh, no, Brazilian merchants and Brazilian uh, 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 officers were actively involved in the process of capture and enslavement of Africans. So African agency is important, but we also have to recognize that Europeans in certain places of the continent had an active role in uh, kidnapping and in capturing and enslaving uh, people and selling them. Uh, so it's one of the things that I, that I realize, especially teaching, that we come across uh, textbooks that emphasize a lot the emphasis of African rulers and in the process um, we don't play the role of European merchants in the processes of enslavement, uh, which might be true for certain parts of the continent, but it's certainly not true for, for Benguela. You know, Europeans, uh, the Portuguese, enslaved people along the coast, but also in the interior. They, they sent caravans, they attacked people, they raided villages. So they were directly involved in the processes of, of enslavement. And I, and I hope people will get that. Uh, but perhaps if I can add something else, another point that I hope people will realize is that you know, identities have been changing in Africa um, for a long time. You know, we, we know Africanists always um, um, stress how identities are flexible and, and you know, they are not fixed. But somehow, uh, we um, no, not much had been written about identity formation um, in West Central Africa. So this was also an effort to show that some of the ethnic groups that exist nowadays, they have a shorter history that we might think of, of them, uh, and that some of these identities were uh, shaped after the transatlantic slave trade, not before. Uh, so in many ways, we have to revisit the history of these um, identities in, in West Central Africa. Well, great. You've, you've really made my interview job much easier because those are you've touched upon some of the things I'd like us to discuss a bit further. Uh, <clears throat> and the first, of course, was I, I too noticed how you really challenged the pre-colonial colonial division. But that just, just if you could, uh, what was the... What was the situation on the ground when the Portuguese arrived? What motivated the Portuguese to arrive there? What did they find? And what did Af how did Africans respond initially at the first point of contact? Well, the, the Portuguese arrived in, in West Central Africa for many reasons. They were trying to. They were not interested in uh, initially interested in, in in capturing people. They were interested in, in tapping into the the Asian market because of the the spices trade and, and so on. Uh, so by the time they arrived in West Central Africa, not exactly in, in Benguela, but for example in places such as the Kingdom of Congo, it is before uh, Europeans arrived in, in the Americas. So they are looking for trade opportunity. They are looking for copper, you know, access to minerals that are important in, in Asia, uh, to, to have an active role in, in trade network in Asia. So one of the hopes of, 
of the Portuguese, the first Portuguese who arrived in the region that became known as Benguela was to tap into the the copper trade, to have access to copper. Copper was extremely important in, in the Asian trade. And uh, so that was one of the hopes. Later on, it changed because of, of no circumstances, because of the expansion of the plantation economy, and the slave trade uh, becomes important in this region. Uh, there were people who lived in, in what became known as the Port of Benguela. Um, they are called the Ndombe, the Mundombe people in the sources. And one of the things that I try to, to document in the book as well is how these people move away from the coast, in part because they they um, they try to save their lives. And, and initially they sign, um, they, they receive the Portuguese, they exchange um, you know, copper, for, uh, although the Ndombe people weren't very interested in the things the Portuguese had to offer to them, but they, they provided copper. But very quickly, this relationship um, gets um, difficult, especially for the Ndombe people, and they retract from the coast in order to survive, politically survived. Um, so it is a, a history of intense violence since the beginning. Uh, trade was the motivation, but there are all these um, misunderstandings and these efforts to occupy the territory um, and um, let's keep in mind that the Portuguese uh, had the, the support of the Vatican in this expansion or this territorial expansion so it was also about conquering land and spreading Christianity and, and converting people to Christianity so you know, as soon as they they land, they also want to, you know, they, they bring a priest in order to, to converge people and not necessarily, you know, everybody know exactly what is, what is going on in this process. Uh, and, and the difficulty is always to, to get to the point of view of the Ndombe people because we only have the, the primary sources left by Portuguese agents. No, we don't, we don't know the other side of the, the story, but um, it's very clear that the Ndombe were not happy with the Portuguese presence there, and they they made efforts to expel the Portuguese. And when they fail, they they move away from the coast in order to survive. Um, survival is very much a, a theme too that I gleaned from your book. And if we may, I'd just like to kind of talk with you a bit or ask you. Uh, some of the things that really struck me about the book, and first of all, is your your you do challenge uh, some pretty major uh, studies about the impact of slavery in Africa, and especially I think Orlando Patterson's notion of social death. And one thing that really struck me about your book was your your questioning this this idea of social death. And you say in one part of your book that slavery, and I'm quoting here, slavery was not social annihilation, but rather a process of negotiation, adaptation, invention, and transformation. So why do you challenge this notion of social death? And, and what do you mean by your counter argument? Well, uh, social death has been associated with uh, people who lose power. Now, it's this powerless um, associated with slavery, where enslaved people feel socially excluded, they, uh, you know, the, the loss of identity, the alienation from previous societies. But I, I didn't encounter there in the primary sources that I, that I came across. Um, in fact, what I encountered was several cases of people 
who refuse to give up uh, their power or refuse to give up their identity. Uh, the, the cases that I come across show the, the life stories of, of individuals who made incredible efforts to regain their freedom and how their families act very fast to free loved ones. Um, I always get a sense from the sources that enslaved people emphasize the, the identity and, and they struggle for, for power. I, I cannot find evidence of social alienation or social death. What I see is a, a very constructive process of adjustment, of adaptation, um, of recreation, of, of creation of, of new identities. Uh, but people never lose a sense of who they were, where they come from. There is a, uh, people who are capturing the fight, the, the enslavement. They always refer to the places where they came from, their their culture. Um, so I don't I don't see social death uh, in many ways. Well, that that leads to my next question, and you you mentioned it briefly when you talked about one some of your major themes, the notion of the creation of identities, the creolization, the formation of a Luso African society. Is this part of your your um, perspective that kind of challenges the social death notion, and what do you mean by creolization, and what kind of society was created that you characterize as Luso-African? Well, uh, the the, the concept of Luso-African has been around for for several decades. Several scholars have made use of of Luso-African, or or some scholars have made use of Euro-Africans also when talking about societies in in West Africa. I use Luso-African because it includes people born in Brazil, in the colony of Brazil, and I feel that Euro-African societies exclude this American component, these people coming from um, a colonial setting as well, and who have a say in the kind of society um, constructed in Benguela. So that's why I use Luso-African, and most scholars who, who work on West Central Africa have made use of the concept of, of Luso-African, of Beatrice Hines, Joseph Miller, and, and so many others before me. Uh, Creolization has been used as this process of cultural exchange that happened in different contexts around the Atlantic world. Um, some scholars have used it to refer to culture, acculturation, and it's not the way I use it here. Here, I, I do agree with... Uh, uh, of sweet, no, with James Sweet, the notion that there is exchange and there is exchange in both sides. It is about local people in West Central Africa adopting ideas coming from from Europe or from Brazil, but also these foreigners adjusting to the local culture in West Central Africa in order to to survive. So it is this notion that local people in West Central Africa, the Ndombe people, for example, could baptize their children in the Catholic Church because it creates some kind of privilege or advantages. But it's also the notion that colonial officers relied on on healers, local healers, to treat diseases and so on. Um, So I see that this kind of social exchange that happened in in personal uh, relationships but also in, in the structure of this Luso-African society. You know, in many ways, the colonial experience is about uh, the Portuguese administration adjusting and adopting uh, local institutions to make sense and to survive. Um, so I, I discussed some of these, these 
um, the ceremonies that are adopted by by the colonial administration in order to to validate the the selection of local rulers, you know, the, the chiefs, um, for example, such as Undar that is adopted, which is not a Portuguese institution, is a local institution that is incorporated by the colonial um, society. So I see this this process of tradition happening both sides. It's not. Uh, the erasure of local culture and acculturation, but it is about exchanging and, and altering how institutions and how societies work. So it is a, a melange of, of things uh, happening. But also I should emphasize that the, the Atlantic world, in many ways the transatlantic slave trade or, or did not invent creolization in West Central Africa. You know, we, we, we can discuss on how people have been migrated before the transatlantic slave trade, you know, before the 17th century in this region. People have been borrowing technology, um, borrowing ideas before the arrival of the Portuguese in this region. Um, so in many ways, these are not fake societies. They have been movement for a long time. So the moment that the Portuguese arrive, it's another group of people uh, to be in contact and to borrow and, and, and exchange ideas. So I don't see creolization as very different from other processes of exchanges that were going on at the same time in the region. Well, that's one thing that another thing that struck me about the book um, was how, f- how few in number the actual Portuguese were on the ground. And it kind of raised the question in my mind, how could they come to exert such a great influence over the African societies they found? And were, was this basically because uh, was the, were asymmetries of power so great in terms of technology and military capability? Or did Africans, was it basically a case of two sides misunderstanding each other and not really knowing the implications of the relationship? Um, oh, I, I don't see much military advantage uh, at the 17th mm. century. Certainly by the 19th century, it's a different different story. Um, but I think one of the features of, of the Portuguese empire is to adjust to the local um, circumstance for the local institutions they encounter. So it's the same thing that happened in, in, in Brazil. Uh, so it's this notion that you incorporate the local society, you tax people, and you claim um, that no, this now is part of your empire. Um, but it is true that very few Portuguese um, men ever made it to West Central Africa. And perhaps the, this, if we want to talk about you know, how, how, managed, how colonialism managed to survive in this region uh, for, for three centuries, it is because it incorporated local people into the administration, so the Ndombe people, but also coming, people coming from neighboring states were um, uh, hired as, as soldiers, uh, as tax collectors. So there is a, a high degree of, let's say, local input into the creation of, of this colonial administration. In many ways, uh, the Portuguese governor, because the governor was always uh, someone sent from, from Portugal or, or from Brazil, um, would rely on locally born people to provide information about tax collections or you know, the number of, of troops available and so on. 
so there is a, a great input of, of local population into the creation of, of the state. And it is a very small uh, colonial, uh, Portuguese colonial presence, although uh, we also have to keep in mind that there are lots of, of local people who were used in the, the colonial administration. And one thing that I also find interesting about West Central Africa is that the European presence, so the Portuguese presence, was not limited to the coast. So there is always this effort to move inland and conquer territory inland. It doesn't mean that um, it was uh, occupation of the territory. So there were points, there were fortresses established uh, in the, the territory, and um, the, the colonial agents would draw these maps that give the illusion that the entire territory is, is under Portuguese control when it was not true. Most of the territory was under the control of African rulers, not of, of Portuguese agents. But this was perceived as part of the Portuguese empire. Well, my next question or series of questions, I think, I hope relates to what you just said, because... Um, <clears throat> Another aspect of the of your book that you that you really call into question is this whole notion of quantitative analysis versus qualitative analysis. And you say at one point in your book, no quantitative analysis can recognize the prevailing force of violence and its devastating effects on West Central African societies. So violence is a theme that I would like you to talk a bit about. I also would like you, if you would, to talk a bit about why you challenge why you think quantitative analyses don't bring out sort of the texture and and the full nature of the devastation and violence that was involved in these in the slave trade? Well, I, first of all, I should say that uh, quantitative analyses are important, and I rely on them uh, to come mm. up with with these numbers. <laughs> now, I, it, it is thanks to the 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 transatlantic slave trade database that we have we now have estimates and we can. It states that based in what we know, Bengala was the third largest slave port in the African continent. So it's because somebody else has done the work for me. Um, so I, I make I make use of I, I use the the quantitative analysis, but I do believe that the, the numbers do not reveal the political, the economic, and the social consequences of the transatlantic slave trade. Now, when we focus on on the numbers, we lose perspective. Of the people, now we we lose the human dimension of losing 760,000 people in three centuries, and uh, the numbers do not reveal the people who died in consequences of of warfare, no, and raids associated with the transatlantic slave trade. Um, we also don't know the people who had their fields destroyed, the cultivated fields destroyed because of raids. And when we only talk about numbers, we, we tend to forget that these were 760,000 fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, friends. Um, no, they loved people. They were loved by, by relatives and friends. So um, one, one cannot start imagining the consequences for those who had to remain in, in West Central Africa of losing so many people in, in a short period of time and having to readjust. You know, we, we, the documents reveal, the primary sources reveal that villages disappear in consequences of, of attacks 
And there were bands of migrants, now refugees, moving around after each one of these attacks. But when we talk about the numbers, we, we, do, we forget that these are individual stories and um, the empathy with, with the human tragedy is lost in the process. It's, it's important to know the numbers. I do appreciate that we have the numbers, but there are problems with these numbers as well. They are, they are estimatives. We, the numbers also give an illusion that no one was exported from Benguela in the 17th century. Um, but we know that there were people in, in Havana or in Lima, in Cartagena, in Rio in the 17th century who are identified as from Benguela. So we also have to revisit um, this notion that the numbers can explain everything because sometimes the numbers cannot provide explanation to the fact that there were people from Benguela in the Americas in the 17th century, although we do not have any information about people leaving from, from Benguela before, uh, until the very late 17th century. Um, so the numbers are important, but I think uh, we also have to focus on the, the human side to, to imagine these as you know, a people and, um, and the effects uh, of of this tragic number of people captured and enslaved, I have had to to the loved ones, to the people who who stayed there and had to cope with losing so many people. Well, let's talk a bit about the human side because a great deal of your book does deal with the humanity uh, of the and inhumanity of of the whole series of relationships and events. One one thing so I, if we may i'd like to just to talk about another thing uh, that you um <clears throat> that struck me and i underlined it in your book was the argument here the atlantic market changed forever how african rulers and their subjects understood war justice and protection and that leads me to ask you about that argument but also how that relates to to me the most devastating chapter in your book was uh, mechanisms of enslavement chapter how how people were enslaved and what were the processes which led to enslavement. And then, I guess, the third component is resistance. You have some very interesting points to make about resistance. But first, let's talk about how this trade changed people's notions of violence, justice, war, and protection, and what were the mechanisms through which um, people became uh, chattel. Um, well, what... The, I, I think you know, one of the problems with this number is that we do, the, only focusing on numbers is that we don't understand how um, local rulers and local people um, adjust to the demands of the transatlantic slave trade. So one of the things that become clear from the primary sources that are available is that um, there were different understandings on who could and who could not be enslaved. We tend to think that anyone could be enslaved in the African continent, but it becomes clear the local rulers, uh, as well as Portuguese officers, Portuguese colonial officers, had notions about protection and who could or not be enslaved. So, um, only in very exceptional cases, uh, such as the case of criminals or political opposition, local rulers enslaved their own people. Uh, in most cases, people enslaved those who belong to another um, society, who declare allegiance to another ruler, or who spoke another language, 
who were basically perceived as a different person. And uh, this is also similar to how Europeans uh, thought about slavery. You know, uh, the Portuguese you know, more followed you know, the Catholic notions that uh, Catholics could not enslave other Catholics, which is also true for Muslims, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that Muslims avoid enslaving fellow Muslims. So in West Central Africa, there were also these, these, um, this rigid notion uh, about who could and could not be enslaved. Um, of course, these notions can change over time, and I think this is one of the things that I try to do in the book, is to show that how states uh, change um, what they penalize with um, enslavement or not over time, in part because of the pressures of the transatlantic slave trade. So one of the things that I discuss is how some of the highland uh, states, states located in the interior of Benguela, um, dealt with crimes related to um, adultery. In some cases, adultery was um, no, was perceived as a crime, and it slowly it becomes penalized with enslavement as the transatlantic slave trade expands uh, inland and the pressures expand for more and more people to be enslaved from this region. Um, so what becomes clear is that all of the actors involved, you know, locally, uh, West, local West Central Africans or uh, Portuguese, debated. You know, they had moral debates about the logics of slavery, the legality of slavery, and all of them considered that slavery was reserved for those who were perceived as different. You now, different because of language, because of the place of origin. It could be skin color, it could be dressing or hairstyle. But no one enslaved, or in very few cases, people enslaved their own people. Uh, it, and this is one of the things that I emphasize in the book, but I do in my teaching all the time, you know, to move away from this idea that Africans uh, enslaved Africans. No, nobody saw themselves uh, from the 17th century to the 19th century as, as being African. No, people were Wambu, Ndombe, Kilengis. They were local identities, and people targeted political enemies. Um, and what I also see happening here is, is that, once again, the active ro role of the Portuguese and the Brazilian-born merchants and, and colonial officers in capturing people and, and enslaving people. So one of the things in, in introduced in, these, in this region, West Central Africa, with the expansion of colonialism since the 17th century, in the case of Benguela, is the notion of legitimate or illegitimate enslavement. So it, it is the, this legal code that is part of the Portuguese code, but it's also part of how slavery is understood in different um, communities in West Central Africa, that there are legal ways and illegal ways to enslave someone. And in the case of people illegally enslaved or people who had been kidnapped, for example, they could challenge the enslavement in local courts, um, and going to, to the Soba, to the local rulers and challenging the enslavement, or they could use the colonial court. Uh, it's another case on how colonial administration you know, creolized a local institution, the, the Mukano institution, and Rokinaldo Ferreira has, has written a lot about this, uh, on how the Mukano tribunal, that was a, a West Central Africa tribunal, was incorporated by the Portuguese Empire to legislate on cases of illegal enslavement in West Central Africa. So I came across different cases of, of people 
who basically tell their story, tell uh, how they were captured, two Portuguese officers in order to challenge the enslavement. And they made um, use of expressions such as original freedom. So these were originally free people. And they would explain their story. Uh, most of these documents are, uh, they are very powerful because they, again, they bring the, the individual case. It's a personal account of someone who was enslaved. Um, but uh, one of the things that I emphasize in the book is that these cases uh, look for uh, the freedom of one person. So it is one person challenge his or her capture. Uh, it's not necessarily challenging the institution of slavery or questioning the legality of slavery, but it's questioning the legality of his or her enslavement, uh, which is quite different. So n none of these actors actors question the existence of, of slavery, but the fact that they should not be enslaved. Um, and this reveals a lot about uh, local morals. Uh, it reveals about rights and legislation, but also how people um, saw themselves, because in some of these accounts, people claim to be, you know, I, I am a Portuguese subject, I am a vassal of the Portuguese crown, I am a Catholic, and, and people show why they could not be enslaved. Or they could also claim that they are vassal or um, uh, a subject of a local ruler, of, for example, and the case of people who say, no, I am a vassal of, uh, I am a vassal of the Portuguese crown because I am a subject of the ruler of Kilengi, for example, and I cannot be enslaved. So it becomes very clear that there were legal limits on who could and who could not be enslaved. But it doesn't mean um, that everybody had access to fight the enslavement. But th these cases are fabulous, and they, they are everywhere in the Angolan archives, and they deserve more attention. Well, that's another thing that really fascinated me is your, your use of law and legal records especially as it relates to resistance. And I was, um, I, I applauded your, your successful efforts to kind of uh, get away from a facile notion, notion, facile notions of resistance and agency. But I also would, would like to nudge you a bit to kind of explain what, what to me uh, was a very provocative argument, and I'll quote it, quote it verbatim. Victims of the expansion of the transatlantic slave trade through their resistance contributed to legitimizing slavery. And the, thought, the questions I had was, what, if they were to resist, what else could they do? And was, if, if it legitimized slavery, what was the point of resistance? <laughs> Well, it's exactly these court cases that I found fascinating, and and I remember when I presented these ideas in you know, in, in in conferences, and so some some colleagues would tell me, oh, these are wonderful cases of resistance to to slavery, people challenging the institution, and it it's not really people are challenging their own enslavement. But in the moment that they use a legal language saying that I cannot be enslaved because I am a Portuguese um, subject or because I'm Catholic or because I live under the protection of the ruler of um, Bailundo, for example, it shows that there are people who can be enslaved. Now, this is the notion. Yeah, I cannot, but it means that my neighbor, who is not a subject of the ruler of Mbundo, can be enslaved. 
So in the moment that these people challenged their own enslavement, they they gave space for slavery to be seen as legitimate, as something that can happen to another person, not to you, not to your family, not to your friends, but to, to somebody else. Um, and, I, and I think this is the, the wealth of the, the court records. You know? they, they reveal individual stories and how people try always to differentiate that I am protected because it, it you know, depends on the case, but it's because I speak Portuguese, it's because I live under the Portuguese uh, urban center, I live close to the coast. It doesn't matter what is the argument, but it's this notion that uh, another person would not have access to the same rights. And I also imagine that very few people had access to the court, the colonial court. I would imagine that most people who left from Benguela were not able to tell their story, uh, could not explain their story in Portuguese, or if they explained their story to Umbundo, a Umbundo translator wouldn't be uh, available to translate their story to the priest or um, to the the judge, the, the colonial judge, who would then uh, legislate about this case. So they are, they are interesting, but in many ways, um, they show, once again, the story of one person challenging uh, his or her enslavement, but making slavery legitimate in the eyes of, of the entire society. Well, here's kind of where my thinking went after I read this part of your book, uh, and I kind of saw this as a narrative framing of basically the transition or transformation of identity from more maybe a collective or kin-based sense of identity to the individual. And the, to me, the really damaging effects of looking of people looking at themselves primarily as individual with individual rights. Is that too much of a stretch to see that kind of narrative thread in your book? No, it's not. Um, and, you know, mo- most court cases are about individuals um, in search of <laughs> their own freedom. Yeah. They are not concerned about the entire society. They are not concerned about other people who don't look like them. So it's not people challenging um, you know, that slavery shouldn't happen, know that it's wrong to capture a human being and enslaved and, and, and put this person on a, on a ship and, and go to Brazil, that it's, nobody questioned that. People questioned the fact that this could not happen to her or to, no, not to him. So it's this notion that this cannot happen to my daughter or my son, but it can happen to someone's daughter and son. <clears throat> Uh, which I agree with you, is this notion that you care about um, no, your individual rights and you don't care about you know, what is wrong. <laughs> but also it's very convenient from the 21st century to condemn people. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, We don't know what exactly, w- what were the other strategies available. We know about people who run away. We know about people who kill the masters. You know, we, we know about uprisings on board of slave ships in the, in the coast of Benguela before um, people left from, from the coast. So people, people tried any, anything available, really, and you know, I don't know if I would do it, you know, if I was in the same situation, if I wouldn't have um, rely on one of these strategies. Um, but it's interesting <clears throat> that there was a legal space to challenge enslavement um, and also the notion that slavery 
uh, was seen as some as something that not everybody could be subject to. So only no, no few people could have, or some other people could be enslaved, which I think is interesting because again it, it forces us to to revisit this notion of, of socially dead. It shows that people were not socially dead after capture, as as Patterson argues. Uh, people try to resist uh, since the moment they were captured until they, they board a slave ship during the, the Atlantic crossing and you know, when finally they arrive, if they arrive in the Americas alive, people also continue to resist. So we see a, a continuous resistance and people never giving up uh, and forgetting who they are in the process, which I think it's, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful story. It, without doubt, it, I can't recommend this book enough to our listeners, uh, An African Slaving Port in the Atlantic World by Mariana P. Candido. I just have one more question, and let's, if you could kind of wrap up, what were some of the political ramifications of, of, of these processes you're, you're examining in your book, and what kind of, how do they manifest themselves today in Angola? Um, well, the, the political ramifications is, well, a series of uh, smaller uh, states or a series of chiefdoms disappeared from the coast. Uh, I think this is one of the the political consequences of the transatlantic slave trade. Now we talk a lot about the social and and uh, the demographic ones, but also this was a region that faced political instability because of uh, wars and raids. And political fragmentation. Uh, so rather than uh, people unifying themselves, people were basically competing for resources, competing for spaces, constantly um, um, attacking neighboring population in order to profit from the transatlantic slave trade. So I see a, a long history of political instability and fragmentation in this region. While in the 17th century, there were a series of smaller uh, polities along the coast. They disappear. Uh, by the 19th century, and what we see happening is this very strong, centralized, uh, militarily powerful states in the interior who profit from uh, warfare, and basically states that um, lived out of the profits of the transatlantic slave trade. They they capture people and sold people uh, in the coast. Um, The consequences of the transatlantic slave trade in, in, in Angola uh, I think there is a demographic loss that is still um, visible in, in, in Angola. Uh, there is this um, long history of colonial presence that is also very visible in Angola. The, not only the, the buildings are, are there, but the Catholic Church has a very strong presence in Angola. And in many ways, it is linked to this very long history uh, and the role of the Catholic Church uh, associated with Portuguese colonialism uh, in, in the region of Benguela since the 17th century, but for other parts of Angola, uh, even for an earlier period. And uh, in many ways, there is a silence uh, about slavery in Angola. Um, the end of the transatlantic slave trade did not represent the end of forced labor in this region. Um, With the expansion of colonialism in the 20th century, what we see happening is more um, uh, the the use of forced labor by the Portuguese uh, colonial government. Uh, So in many ways, slavery got a new name, as other scholars have already discussed. 
for territories under Portuguese control. And forced labor was a reality in this region. Now, slavery was a reality in this region until 1961. Um, so there are consequences of that. Um, there are consequences on the way people see themselves, their role, uh, the interaction with Portugal, the interaction with Brazil, but also how slavery is an uncomfortable subject in in Angola. I, I recently wrote a piece about that, how slavery is an uncomfortable subject. You know, people are willing to talk about slavery as long as we talk about what happened in Brazil. Um, but um, there is no public acknowledgement that slavery also happened there in Africa. And there, there are lots of people who remain enslaved locally in it's one of the things that deserved more attention from you now scholars should start working on that the long the long history of slavery in this region well you've certainly sent uh, a great you set the bar high for how to continue that and pursue that agenda um and i think your book will open up people's hearts and minds to seeing that the slavery issue the slavery experiences in angola is something that needs to be discussed and you show how complex, nuanced, and morally ambiguous the whole the whole thing was, uh, in ways that probably should you know take away the, the sense of shame and stigmatization that is so much a part of how people think about uh, questioning how Africans could have enslaved other Africans. Mm-hmm. Your book counters counters that greatly. I can't thank you enough. We've been talking with. Mary, Professor Mariana P. Candido, whose book uh, is entitled An African Slaving Port in the Atlantic World, Bengala and Its Hinterland. It's published by Cambridge University Press, and I can assure you that we've only, only touched the very surface of this book. It's very rich. It's an, a major achievement. It should be read by not only by all, every possible Africanist, but anyone else outside, anyone interested in the history of our world. Mariana, thank you so much for being a guest. No, thank you. And I thank you for being a careful reader. (laughs) 